What an uh, incredible and surreal joy to be up here with you, church family. And um, It was almost nine and a half years ago that right behind me I preached my first sermon ever on a Sunday night here. And uh, certainly did not ever dream that night that God would ever uh, bring me back. But um, we're back, and I'd just like to say from Bethany and I, thank you, church family, for how sweetly and warmly and richly you have welcomed us uh, here, and we are just, it is a joy and an honor and a blessing and privilege to be here with you. Before we dive into the text today, I'd like to just go to Lord in prayer uh, one more time before we go, so if you pray with me. Father, you are good beyond our wildest understanding and comprehension. Uh, Truly, for all eternity, we will forever be learning of your unending goodness and greatness. So we praise you this morning, Jesus, we praise you that you've sought us, that for many in this room you have saved and washed us clean, and very simply this morning, it is my prayer, Jesus, that you would be high and lifted up in this place, that we would walk out of here having seen you forever changed, that we would be forever changed in having seen you. So Holy Spirit, move through this room. Empower and freedom, move and stir our hearts, and Father, speak directly to our hearts, and may we walk out just a people in deeper love with you and in greater awe of who you are. It's in your name I pray today. Amen. If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. Acts chapter 4, and we're going to cover um, a decent amount of verses. But let me give you uh, two things as you're turning to Acts 4, two things you need to know that kind of set up the passage we have today. The first is Acts 1.8. Uh, you go through, you read the whole book of, book of Acts. Acts 1.8 really is the driving verse behind all of Acts. And Acts 1.8 is where uh, Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven. And he has the disciples, they're out on the Mount of Olives. And he tells them, he says, and this, you will ha- uh, when the Spirit comes upon you, you will have power. You will receive power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts is the story of the disciples, of the apostles, of the early church, uh, having the Holy Spirit come upon them in salvation, and then going out and watching the church spread from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So it's really the, the binding verse on our passage today is that, is Christ's command to his disciples, his promise and command that the Spirit would come upon them. And so for you and I, come upon us and we will be his witnesses second thing you need to know is what happens right before Acts 4. In Acts 3, Peter and John go up to the temple. They see a man who we find out has been paralyzed, has been lame for 40 years. He's begging for money. Everyone knows this man. He's the temple beggar. We don't know his name, but everyone at that time knew who he was, and he's asking for money, and Peter heals him. And this man gets up and walks, and it causes quite a stir around the temple, and it opens the door for Peter to preach, uh, preach the gospel, preach... uh, Jesus' death and resurrection and the healing and saving power that is in Christ. And you get into the beginning of chapter 4, and you see them continuing to preach. Peter and John, and, and in the first five verses, you're going to see they're preaching the name of Jesus. And uh, the temple guard, which is the second most powerful person at the temple, the chief over the guards, uh, the temple soldiers, and the Sadducees, who are adamantly opposed to the resurrection, they come out and they are, they are annoyed, they're hacked off at Uh, Peter and John for doing this. They come out, they arrest them, and because it's evening, they just throw them in the temple jail cells for the next day. And we find out that as a result of all of this, many believed 
in Christ, and their number came to be about 5,000. So we're going to pick up Acts 4, verse 5. It says, The next day the rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand in the middle of them, they asked the question, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, that is, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. So they bring him in. This is the same group of individuals. This is the Sanhedrin. These are the most prominent religious and political powers of the Jewish people, the most prominent lawyers. They've drugged Peter and John in before them in a room, not, not this big, but, but set up the same way, where you've got kind of an amphitheater, a half circle surrounding them, and they're standing in the middle. And these people, with all the powers, this is the same group that Jesus stood before leading up to his crucifixion. The same people that orchestrated his crucifixion is the same people that now Peter and John stand before being tried by. And students... High school, junior high, and college students, you need to understand that as we look at this passage and we see what God has to say for us, it's not just binding on adults, it's binding on you because most likely John right now at this point standing here is somewhere in between 17 and 19 years old. John was most likely about 15 when Jesus looked at him in the Sea of Galilee and said, you follow me, which means he would have been about 18 or 19 when Jesus is crucified, when Jesus is resurrected, and when he is now standing as a young man before the most prominent and powerful and knowledgeable people in the entire nation of Israel. And they stand there, and it says very clearly, Peter was filled with the Spirit. That Peter and John both uh, were filled with the Spirit, and they give this powerful testimony. The emphatic point of which is that there is only one person and one person alone who has the power to save and the power to heal, and that is Jesus Christ. So they give their testimony. And you drop down in verse 13, and it says that the, the Sanhedrin, all these leaders, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. So what they notice is they realize these, these men standing before them, these young men, they've not had any formal religious education. They haven't gone through a school like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They're not like Paul, who had formal training. They're untrained, they're uneducated, they're not trained in how to be articulate, they're just two average fishermen. But they recognize that they have been with Jesus. And they're amazed and they're astonished at their ability to respond so boldly, so clearly, so gracefully. And it also says, and here's what we also find out, is that the man who was healed, they have brought him in as well. So there's three men standing there. In verse 14, it says, they saw the man who was healed were standing with them and they had nothing to say in response. They could not come against the fact that they just said Jesus healed this man and there's the man healed. The man they all have watched for 40 years beg at the temple gate. Some of them maybe or maybe not have given money to and now he's standing before them totally fine, perfectly healthy. So they spend several verses here and they're debating what do we do about this? How do we stop this? We can't ignore the fact that it actually happened. 
it's real, so what do we do? And you look in verse 18, it says this, So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And the idea of order there is they literally threatened them. Not a soft threat. They said, if you go out and you speak any more in the name of Jesus, if you teach any more in the name of Jesus, we will come against you. We will bring the hammer down on you. You're not safe. Your family's not safe. Your business is not safe. It was a harsh threat. It was a physical threat, not just a a small slap on the wrist. It says, but Peter and John answered them and said, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you judge that. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So he says, look, you tell us if it's right. You use your own power of logic and you tell us if we should obey you or obey God. Because we can't stop talking about what we have seen and heard. So they threaten them more, verse 21. And then they release them, finding no way to punish them because God... Uh, because the people were giving all the glory to God for what has be, had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So they released them having no way to really come against them. Because the people, the, the populace is very much in favor of Peter and John right now because of what's happened. And they're praising the Lord because of it. So look in verse 23. Here's the response. Peter and John, they leave this trial. They go away. And it says, after they released, they went to their own people. They went back to the church, and they reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Uh, For the early church here, you've had uh, Jesus ascend. You've had Peter and the disciples go out at Pentecost. 3,000 people at least have come and responded to Christ. Uh, So you you see this incredible response. That would be unprecedented for the church. Uh, Realize that when Jesus ascended in Acts uh, chapter 1, it says that there were only 120 people who followed Christ that were left at that point. Christ ascends with only 120 people that he's told to go and make disciples of the whole world. And all of a sudden, in one day, that 120 grows exponentially to at least 3,000 people. And up until this point, and we don't know what the exact time lapse is, whether it's just a few weeks or whether it's a few months, but up until this point, they have not had major opposition. So this is the first moment that that the early church, the first moment the church will find herself opposed by the government, opposed by people, opposed in some kind of official way. And here is their response to it. Verse 24, when they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father, David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon, behold, consider their threats and grant, enable your bondservants to speak your message with complete boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began, and began continuing. It was the beginning. They began to speak God's message, God's word with boldness. So you have their responses instantly to go before the Lord in prayer. And they do three things in their prayer. They acknowledge God's sovereignty over all creation and over history. They petition specifically and ask that God would enable them to be bold. 
Uh, and then they obviously expect that God is going to be moving in the world around them as he is enabling them to be bold. And the result of all of this, the result of their collective petition is that they are all then filled with the Spirit and they go out and they begin to speak the word of God with boldness. And then you pick up with the rest of the book of Acts and that's what you see. You see the church going out and you see them speaking the word of God boldly and clearly. A simple story, a story of a trial, a story of a response. But this is a passage that speaks right to the heart of where you and I are at today as followers of Christ in our context. The central focus of this passage is that you and I as followers of Christ are called to nothing short of a bold and faithful witness for Christ. But the only possible way we can be a bold and faithful witness is if we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. It describes for us what a bold witness looks like. You see Peter and John, they go before, and, and you, you see the words in the text, when they observe the boldness of Peter, you see the people of God in, in verse uh, uh, 29 praying for boldness. This idea of boldness, I'm going to read you the best definition I can find because it's better than anything I could uh, speak in my own words. It's, it's the trait of being willing to undertake activities that involve risk or danger, especially that involve being honest and straightforward in attitude and speech. It's the use of speech that conceals nothing and passes over nothing. It's a state of boldness and confidence. It's akin to courage. The idea of boldness here is not brashness. It's not rudeness. It's not screaming. It's not yelling. The idea of boldness here is stating that which is right and true in the face of people who will disagree. In, in Greek, the idea of boldness, this was a right of free citizens to speak out. That's how this word was used often in other, other Greek texts. And you and I need to remember as we are called to boldness that it does not ever matter what party or people, whether it is an office or whether it is a government, says you can or cannot speak the name of Jesus. You are or are not free to speak the name of Jesus. There is no place where the gospel is truly closed because Jesus has all authority and all creation and he has said, witness to the gospel, witness to Christ. This is the idea of boldness, of courage standing in, and it's what you and I are called to. Because our lives are no longer for our safety, but they're for his glory if we are in Christ. And our purpose in remaining here on earth is single-fold. It is to seek and save the lost. As we live the life that God has given us to live, it is to be a witness for Christ. And we are to do it boldly. And you and I live in a day and age when the witness for Christ demands the utmost of boldness. As cultural Christianity wanes in our country, as things move further and further away, it will demand greater and greater boldness to stand and to give a witness for Christ. And the idea of boldness in Scripture, when you, when you turn over, uh, you, don't, you, you don't turn there, but I'll, I'll read it to you. First Peter describes the kind of boldness we're to use. It says in verse 15, 1 Peter 3, 15, Always be ready to give a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are accursed, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. The kind of boldness described here is not the kind of boldness that finds ways to rant and rave. It's not the kind of boldness that seeks to attack. It's the kind of boldness that is gentle and respectful. It is a calm, cool stating of truth 
that should have behind it a heart of love for Christ and for people. That drives the boldness. You see it in Peter and John. Peter and John did not get up there and say, well, you sorry stinkers who killed Christ. And they didn't come and start jabbing. And what they say? They respectfully used their titles, rulers, elders. They were gentle, they were respectful, but they were bold. But here's the deal. This kind of boldness, this is what is described in this passage, which you and I are called to. It's what has to be in our lives if we are to be faithful to Christ. It is not possible for you and I to produce this boldness. It does not matter how hard you and I try to psych ourselves up mentally. It does not matter what pep talk we give ourselves. It does not matter how hard we push ourselves. You and I cannot produce this level of boldness. Because what this passage prescribes upon us is it is the only way we can be this bold is if the Holy Spirit fills us. If the Holy Spirit fills us, it is the Spirit's filling that enables you and I to be this kind of bold. So when you think about standing in class, high school student or college student, or you think about man or woman in your job standing and witnessing for Christ and you sense the nervousness and your lack of ability to have that boldness, you're right. You and I do not possess that boldness We must have the Holy Spirit's filling if we are to be this bold in our witness for Christ. This kind of bold. A boldness that is clear. A boldness that speaks the truth in the face of danger. A boldness that is gentle and respectful. We must be filled with the Spirit. So what's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Let me give you a couple things it's not and a couple things it is. This is not referring to when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us at salvation. This is something separate. The Holy Spirit, the moment you and I are saved, we're washing the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in fullness and completeness and fills you and I completely and lives within us. It's a one-time thing. It happens, and it's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Not part. It's all. All the person of the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us at salvation. The filling of the Holy Spirit, then, is subsequent because the Holy Spirit lives in my heart. This is when the Holy Spirit empowers and enables me. And I yield myself to his control in obedience. You can be filled. You see the, the, the use of the word filled elsewhere in Acts. In the next chapter, Ananias will be filled by Satan. Uh, you see the Pharisees later on are filled with jealousy, meaning that Ananias has yielded to the control and power of Satan and acted accordingly. Uh, the Pharisees, meaning that out of everything within them, they have been filled with jealousy and they have yielded to that jealousy and acted accordingly. To be filled with the Spirit means you and I are are filled, we yield to the power of the Holy Spirit. Which means that it is not simply an emotional thing. This is not Star Wars and the Force. Whenever uh, you feel really strong in the Force and you start to walk in the power of the Spirit and all of a sudden a humming sound starts buzzing, this is not that. This is the power of the Holy Spirit enabling you and I to obey and us responding in obedience. Meaning you or I, I don't know, the scripture doesn't describe if Peter and John felt confident standing in that, in that trial that day. What it describes is they were able to be bold because the Holy Spirit filled them. So it's, it's a yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit's control and, and power coming over us. Whenever you see the filling of the Holy Spirit, it is always passive. It's why we know you and I can't make ourselves filled. It's always passive. It's God who fills us with the Holy Spirit. It's God who pours the power of the Spirit into our lives that we must yield to. And it's interesting when you look at the filling of the Holy Spirit, it is never internal. 
It's never inward focused. Use a better word. It's never inward focused. It is always outward focused. Every time you see the, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, it is always in reference to the verbal proclamation of Jesus Christ to the world. When you go over to Ephesians and, and you see the command, as we'll see in a second, to be filled by the Holy Spirit. It gives several participles after this command, and in those participles it describes what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And every one of the things that it describes about being filled with the Spirit are outward it is heartfelt, it is, it is praise to the Lord with your whole being. It is edification and encouragement of the body of Christ. It is submission to one another as fellow believers. So let's be clear that the, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not some special, unique, mystical emotion I get for a deeper relationship with Christ. The filling of the Holy Spirit is yielding to the control and power of the Holy Spirit. It is the power of the Holy Spirit the power of God within you to enable you to do things you and I are not capable of that we must yield to volitionally and walk out. This is what the filling of the Spirit is. And we already hit, in a way, why? Why are we called to be filled with the Spirit? Because you and I cannot be bold proclaimers of the message of Christ if we are not filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the central point of the message. If you look back in Acts 4 here, look back in verses 8 through 12. Specifically 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. There is none. So if you're in this room today, you need to understand that there is only one, one person who can save and one person who can heal, and it is Jesus Christ. And for many of us, we have responded to Christ. If you're in this room today and you have not responded to Christ in repentance and faith, understand today is the day, the time is now. And we'd invite you here, whether it's at the invitation here in a moment, or whether it's in a Sunday school class afterwards, or whether it's with a peer who invited you. If you sense the Holy Spirit moving, that you would yield to Jesus Christ, because Christ and Christ alone is the only one who can save and the only one who can give life. And for the rest of us who are in Christ, this is the content of our message. Ephesians 5, why else would we be filled with the Spirit? Ephesians 5, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Paul uses an imperative and commands us, this is the greatest command to me uh, ever because he commands you and I to do something we can't do. Uh, be filled with the Spirit. Command. Uh, which then leads us to this question, which is, okay, well, how do we be filled with the Spirit? If we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit, if we need to be filled with the Spirit, how do you and I be filled with the Spirit? How does this take place? So there's four ways, four ways we're going to look at. And they're in the text. One is, one is very simple. You cannot be filled in the Spirit if you and I are not walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5 uh, talks about uh, what it looks like to walk in the Spirit and to walk in the flesh. It says that if you walk in the Spirit, you won't satisfy the desires of the flesh. It describes the desires of the flesh and it describes the fruit of the Spirit. That if you're walking in the Spirit, the fruit that should come out of your life are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you and I are walking and are living our lives in habitual sin, do not expect, we will not be able to, to be filled with the Spirit. Because instead of walking in the Spirit, we are walking by grieving the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5. So for you and I to be filled with the Spirit, we must be committed to walking in the Spirit, to living out that which God has commanded of us in His Word. It means you and I, like Peter and John, if you look at him here, they have one, uh, there is one aim for their lives. It is not to come out of this safely, it is to come out of this faithfully. Nothing less than complete and total loyalty to Jesus Christ is demanded from you and I's lives if we are followers of Christ. 
And frankly, what else should be expected if we have truly been saved by so great a Savior? How can we be loyal to anyone else or anything else other than Jesus Christ? That disposition must be present in our hearts if we are to be filled with the Spirit. There must be a committedness to following Christ's loyalty. There must be a committedness to walking in the Spirit. Walking in a manner pleasing to God if we are to be filled with the Spirit. We must walk in the Spirit. Second way. Second how, how you and I are supposed to be filled with uh, the Spirit. Uh, we must be uh, faithful and committed to the local church. Now this is kind of one that I notice as, as I go through here. But look, look down at the text here. What happens? There's, there's, if you read the book of Acts, there's two different situations you see the Spirit filling people. One is what we see in verse 8. It's when someone is standing about to give a verbal witness to Christ and you see the Holy Spirit fill them, enabling them to do that. Peter does it here. Uh, You see it in Acts 9 with Paul. But there's a second time you see the Holy Spirit filling people and it's what you see at the end of the passage. Notice verse 31. When they had prayed, when the body of Christ who came together in a place had prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak God's message with boldness. When you go over to Ephesians 5 and you look into that, All of the realities of being filled by the Spirit all tie to the local body of Christ. Which tells you and I that there is some kind of connection between our faithfulness and committedness to the body of Christ and our ability to be filled with the Spirit. Meaning if we cast off and we neglect, we forsake, as Hebrews 10 mentions, do not forsake. But if we forsake the body of Christ, we will hamper our ability to be filled with the Spirit. Because there seems to be this connection between the two. Now, how does this apply to you and I? Uh, Research shows that the average faithful church member attends church less than twice a month today in America. You would flunk out of college with that kind of attendance. But that's what we give on average to Christ and his body. To the bride of Christ, the bride whom Jesus loves, that's what we give. And we wonder why we aren't filled with the Spirit and why we're not able to speak boldly. Because there is a connection between our coming together as a body to edify, to build one another up, to encourage one another, to seek the Lord, to be edified by the proclamation of God's Word and our ability to be filled with the Spirit. So it behooves all of us in this room to to walk away today and to look and to say, how committed and faithful am I to the body of Christ? Both to being present, but not just being present, to actually being engaged and loving and caring and part of the active body of Christ here at Central Baptist Church. That's how it applies practically to you and I today. So we've got to walk in the Spirit. We've got to be committed to the body of Christ. And here's the next deal, and you see this clearly here. The primary way you and I are going to be filled with the Spirit is we have to ask for it in prayer. Notice what you see here. Uh, Their their response to the opposition, the local church's response to the opposition is immediately to go to the Lord in prayer. It is to recognize we don't have the boldness, we don't have the ability. It is to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, make us bold. You see it when you go back to Acts chapter 1. The 120 people, they are gathered together praying. And it is then when they are praying that the Holy Spirit fills them and they go out and they preach at Pentecost. There is a connection between prayer and being filled with the Spirit. How are we filled? We We pray. Take your Bibles, uh, go to Luke 11. Luke 11. In Luke 11, you have the disciples 
they recognize and they see Jesus' power and his, and his ability. And it's interesting, as I was studying and preparing this week, what came out was they don't ask. They see Jesus' ability, but they don't ask Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to preach or Jesus, teach us how to do miracles. They ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. They notice this connection between Jesus' prayer life and between his power to do what he does. And so he teaches them, and you see in verse 2 through 4 that the Lord's Prayer, you drop down into verse 5, and Jesus gives a parable about a... Uh, uh, you know, suppose you've got a friend who comes and knocks on your door in the middle of the night and wakes you up and is in, in, his need, in need of food, and it's in the middle of the night and you don't want to do it, but he just keeps bugging you and bugging you and bugging you. You as a friend will, will give. You'll get up and you'll give. Uh, give him just out of his persistence what he needs. So then he says this in verse 9, So I say to you, keep asking and it will be giving, given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be open to you. And if you look at the very bottom, verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Uh, we, we commonly quote that verse, ask, seek, knock, but the way that it's actually there is it's a keep asking. It's a continual asking, a continual seeking, a continual knocking. It is not a one-time prayer, Lord, please fill me. But it is a daily, consistent part of my life praying, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. It is a constant seeking, seeking, Lord, please fill me with the Holy Spirit. I am in desperate need of you to fill me with the Holy Spirit to enable me to be the witness that I need to be. To enable me to stand, to enable me to be faithful. It is a constant daily seeking. And you notice what he says, that the Lord delights to give the Holy Spirit. Let me read you. Samuel Chadwick said this. The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless Bible study, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. If you and I are to be filled with the Spirit, we must be committed to praying and to being men and women of prayer. Not who offer a prayer, but men and women whose lives are characterized by prayer. I am thoroughly convinced that one of the reasons the, the, the church in America seems to walk so weakly is because we are so uncommitted to prayer. We will, we will pray as a formality to open or close a business meeting, but do we really pray? We will plan, we will strategize, we will, we will uh, plot, we will debate, we will wrestle how to handle these things. And you see it even with our election cycle. I've, I've spoken with my wife about this and, and, and with some of the college students. I've seen 800,000 articles about who you should and shouldn't vote for. I've not seen a single response from any church saying we're just going to pray because we're so broken. That should be the first response. It is the first response of the church in Acts at the face of opposition is to go to the Lord in prayer. So if we want to practically implement this today, I would challenge you in your Sunday school class as soon as we leave here that you spend time in your Sunday school class as a group, as the body of Christ, praying for boldness. And then for you and I as individuals that we walk out of this place today and we're committed to daily praying that God would fill us with the Holy Spirit to enable us to be bold. So we walk in the Spirit, we're committed to the body of Christ, we ask in prayer, we rest in faith. James 1 uh, says, uh, it's talking about wisdom and asking the Lord for wisdom, but it says that the one who doubts, don't let him expect 
don't let him expect to, to, to receive anything because he is one tossed to and fray. But if one's going to ask, you must ask in faith. You must ask in such confidence that you will rest the entire weight of your request upon the Lord in his response. Scripture's overwhelmingly clear. You don't need uh, to turn there. I'm just going to read, uh, read you them. But Luke 12, Luke 12 says, Whenever they bring before you, before you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Then again in Luke 21, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. It will lead to an opportunity to witness Therefore, make up your minds not to prepare your, your defense ahead of time, for I will give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist and contradict. You and I, as we pray, have to rest assuredly in the fact that regardless of what you and I feel, the Lord will respond and answer because he delights to pour out the Holy Spirit and to fill us with the Holy Spirit to enable us to be bold. It's his promise, and you and I have to rest on it no different than every one of you right now is not giving a second thought to the fact that you have put all of your body weight on that chair to hold you up off the ground. I use that with my students at Carrollton all the time. They're probably sick of me saying it. Uh, got sick of me saying it. Every one of you is exercising faith right now in the chair that's holding you up. You are resting your full weight off on that chair to keep you up off the ground. And so you and I have to rest completely and totally that God will do exactly what he says he will do, whether we feel it or not. We have to rest in faith. Now here's the expectation part in Acts 4. They pray this, they ask this, they recognize their need for boldness, and they do it with an expectation in their prayer that God is going to move in the world around them. And you and I need to know as we seek, never has there been a time when we have been in more need to be filled by the Spirit, to enable us to be bold witnesses, because the hope for the world will never be found in anything other than Jesus Christ. And people believe when they hear. And how can they hear unless they preach? How can they preach unless they are sent? How blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. You and I have to verbally share the gospel as we are incarnationally living out a faithful life in Christ. And we need to do it expecting God to be moving in the world around us. That's the nature of their prayer. Look back in Acts 4. They say, say while you stretch out your hand for signs, for healings, for wonders, you and I need to know that God, we don't go on this mission to witness for God. This is God's mission he's active in doing right now. We go with him. We don't go for him. We go with him. And when we walk in the spirit, when we are filled with the spirit, we will recognize his movement in the world. And we will be enabled and emboldened and, and given wisdom to be able to speak clearly into what he is doing around us. And we need to watch and we need to see. And we need to be unafraid by any situation. We should never measure any situation by what you and I have the ability to do, whether it's an individual or a group. Well, I mean, I just don't have the ability to see that person. No, no, no. John and Peter didn't have the ability to heal a lame man. Jesus Christ did. And because John and Peter were faithful to do what Christ called them to do, filled with the Spirit. Jesus' power shone through a man so broken no one else could help him. And the world could not deny it. And it opened the door for Peter and John and the apostles and the disciples to be faithful witnesses. So you and I need to not neglect the hard cases. But we need to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. To be bold 
to see what the Lord is doing in the world around us, to shine as his witness. A.W. Tozer said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. You and I must, it is imperative that we be filled with the Spirit today. Because you and I are called to be bold and faithful witnesses and we are only able to do it if we are filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, uh, you have given us an incredible task and I praise you that we don't go into that, uh, that mission for you, but we go with you. And you are doing things all around us. Father, may we walk well in you. May we can be committed to your body. And Father, we ask collectively that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit who already lives within us, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we would be able to walk as bold witnesses. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. If you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, as the Lord moves on your heart to respond, if you need to talk to someone without knowing, uh, having a relationship with Christ, or if you uh, need to join the church, or if you just need prayer, please come forward. Me and the ministers are down at front. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you. But as we are in this time of invitation, you listen to the Lord, listen to his spirit, and you respond accordingly.